Good morning. Um, in uh, his introduction um, to his September 2019 sermon on Obadiah, the, uh, the well-known speaker, Les Buchanan, said that Obadiah is reckoned to be the least read book in the entire Bible. And judging by last week's straw poll, we might add that it is perhaps the least well-remembered book of the Bible. For only one person in Castlereagh Fellowship could remember Les's excellent talk on the subject, on the book. And we might have expected that that one individual would be Les himself. <laughs> but alas, no. Not even Les could recall his own talk. However, I have to say in fairness to Les, he did say to me on Sunday evening last that as I had gone through the talk last Sunday morning, parts of it were starting to sound a bit familiar. <laughs> but hopefully that um, the short time frame will mean that you haven't forgotten everything that was said uh, last week. And uh, I hope some of you did your, uh, like good pupils, did your homework assignment and actually read Obadiah for yourself, if not um, actually listened again to, to Les's talk. But to recap, Obadiah's message is one of divine judgment against Israel's brother nation, Edom, the descendants of Jacob's twin Esau. Regrettably, relations between the nations were marked by tension and animosity, even outright war on occasions. And last Sunday, we spent most of our time looking at just the overall context of the book, rather than getting into the specifics of the, the text. So this Sunday morning, we're going to do the latter, and then hopefully derive some lessons as we journey through the text. And um, rather than read it all as one block, um, I think we're going, we'll, we'll divide Obadiah up into four sections, and then I'll draw out one key lesson for each of our sections. So the first section is actually the first uh, nine verses, the first nine verses of uh, the book. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has <coughs> deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? 
but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timam, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So these first nine verses then deal with Edom's coming abasement. And as befits the shortest book of the Old Testament, its title, simply The Vision of Obadiah, is the briefest of any Old Testament book. The remainder of verse 1 is directed at Edom's surrounding nations. These nations have received a divine summons to go to battle with the Edomites. So Yahweh is living up to his name as the sovereign Lord by using these other nations, these pagan nations, as the instrument of his wrath. Verse 2 signals Edom's fate. She will be brought low among the nations, made small, despised, abased. Verse 3 tells that Edom has been deceived by its own pride. Edom thought of itself as invincible, unassailable by enemies due to the topography of its land with its mountainous terrain, its deep caves and its steep slopes which gave its cities a natural fortification. Indeed, the capital, Sela, was actually embedded into the rocks. Who can bring me down to the ground? Well, the answer is the sovereign Lord can. Though you soar like the eagle, the largest bird in the region, and make your nest among the stars, the highest part of God's visible creation, from there I will bring you down. Verses 5 to 6 highlight the sheer scope of Edom's coming devastation. Whereas a typical thief, if he breaks into your property, he won't take away absolutely everything, only what he needs. Or a grape picker will leave something on the vine, but not so with Edom. Edom is going to be absolutely ransacked and pillaged. Verse 7 details that Edom will not only be the victim of internal self-deception, i.e. its own pride, but of external deception too, for its former allies are going to turn traitor on them and are going to desert Edom in the day of their need, in the hour of their need. And verses 8 to 9 tell us that in the coming day of judgment, Edom's famed wisdom and its military prowess will be to no avail. Everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut 
down in the slaughter. It is a truly terrifying prospect that awaits Israel's kindred people. And so to the first of this morning's lessons, and it's this. Beware a false sense of security. Beware a false sense of security. The Edomites were a proud people who felt that they were impregnable. The sources of their arrogance were uh, varied. And actually, Les brought this out really well in his talk, which I hope that some of you, maybe even Les himself, have you know, listened to again, because it was really good. A lot was to do with the natural protection provided by the mountainous and cavernous nature of their territory. As Les said in a, in, a, in a memorable phrase, the Edomites were a people who literally looked down on others. They did because of the height of their cities. With their high sandstones into which Selah was embedded, the Edomites were super confident that no one would ever conquer their territory. So they, they trusted in their natural terrain, the advantage of their natural terrain, but they also trusted in their wealth. Their slopes were suitable for growing grapes, and they had copper, wine, copper mines rather, as a rich source of mineral wealth. Furthermore, the Edomites had grown wealthy by imposing tolls or taxes on the sort of trade route, the caravan route through their territory, what was known as the King's Highway, as dealers brought their wares from India and Egypt and then from northern countries as well. So they were wealthy. But they also trusted in their learning. Edom was actually regarded as uh, it was famous for its wisdom, for its human wisdom. And uh, for example, one of Job's comforters was from Tamam. But they also trusted in their military strength, in their warriors, in their army, and in their military hardware. So a combination of terrain, wealth, wisdom, and military might made the Edomites feel highly secure, breeding a sense of proud self-sufficiency. But this would not prevent their destruction. And the famous proverb comes to mind, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But what about us? What about you and me? Are we not prone to the temptation to false security? Do we place our trust for today and tomorrow in our strength, in our wisdom, in our material wealth, in our jobs, in our bank balances, in our friends, in our families, rather than in God? If we do so, we are on dodgy ground. Our world 
may come down crashing around us. All it takes is a medical diagnosis, an economic downturn, a broken relationship, a bereavement, and we're left desolate and disconsolate. So make sure that your trust, your ultimate trust, is in no one or nothing other than in the sovereign Lord. So our second section then is verses 10 to 14. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So this section, second section I've called Edom's fratricide, and fratricide is the killing of your brother or sister. So hopefully it doesn't stir any emotions with Jeff and Vivian at the minute. Last week I said that to understand Obadiah, we need to read it within the grand narrative of the relationship between Edom and Judah stroke Israel. And we did spend a lot of time looking at the troubled history of that relationship. And in this section then, we're going to hear Yahweh's specific charge against Israel's fellow nation. These verses, in fact, read like an ancient lawsuit, a lawsuit against Edom. Verse 10 accuses Edom of violence against your brother Jacob. And then in verses 11 to 14, we have itemized various components of that harm to their fellow nation, their brother nation. First of all, we're told in verse 11 that they stood aloof whilst foreign aggressors plunder the wealth of Jerusalem. Such callous unwillingness to come to the defense of Judah made them complicit in the crime. You were like one of them, says the Lord. Secondly, in verse 12, we're told that the Edomites gloated over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Gloating over another person or other nation's misfortune is what our German friends call, one of my favorite words, schadenfreude, schadenfreude. And if you want um, a modern day example of schadenfreude, Think of the pleasure that Northern Irish and Scottish supporters experience 
when England are knocked out of another football tournament. That's schadenfreude, gloating over another's misfortune. Although I think even in that case, the Lord has a wee bit of a chuckle, actually. Um, Edom rejoiced over Judah's calamity and destruction. Further, we hear them boast this consistent with what we saw about their pride and sense of invincibility. You know, what was happening to their kinsfolk, Judah, could never happen to them, or so they thought. Verse 13 suggests that the Edomites may actually may have actually participated in the sacking and looting of Jerusalem, marching through its gates and seizing its wealth. And verse 14 completes the charge sheet by detailing that the Edomites engaged in heartless treachery against Judah. What they did was they cut off the escape route for Judean refugees and they basically handed them over to their aggressors. As I sort of intimated last time, the commentators are not sure not absolutely certain of what period of history is in view here. It could be back in the days of Jerorum uh, and around 850 BC, or it could refer to the actual destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 BC. But either way, Edom is guilty of gross violence and treachery in respect of Judah, their brother nation. They certainly wouldn't have been found singing any rendition of the Hollies hit, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. And that takes us to this morning's second lesson. Beware the root of bitterness. Beware the root of bitterness. We saw last time that Jacob and Esau had always been at each other's throats. God's law actually specified, do not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Deuteronomy 23 verse 7. But things did not work out accordingly. The Edomites, you see, proved to be difficult neighbors, and relations between the kindred nations plummeted into hostility and open conflict. And the practical lesson for us is that we need to seek to do everything to stop such acrimony creeping in to our families and especially into our church family. The Bible is absolutely replete with warnings against fighting and squabbling between believers about bearing grudges, and it exhorts us to strive to maintain unity, to speak kindly and generously to and about one another, and to be willing to forgive one another. Andrew very helpfully started this morning by reading from Ephesians 4, um, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond 
of peace. How sad it is and how damaging to the church's witness to the world when believers are estranged from one another, harboring resentments and sometimes even unwilling to speak or to meet up with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. So let us learn from the sorry history of Jacob and Esau and of their descendants, Judah and Edom. Praise God, Castlereagh Fellowship has always been known for its unity. But let us not take that for granted as we move forward. And it is incumbent on everybody who belongs to Castlereagh Fellowship to seek to maintain the unity of the fellowship. Section 3 then, verses 15 to 16. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. So we short section this time, just two verses. But I want you to note three things here. First of all, the reference to the day of the Lord. And day is a very common term in the book of Obadiah. And the day of the Lord refers to a period when the Lord will directly intervene in human history in judgment against evil, as well as vindication of the righteous. Secondly, note that this punishment is for all nations. Edom now comes to represent all the enemies of God and of his people. And third, we have here enunciated what is called the law of retribution. And this was the basic principle of jurisprudence in the Old Testament. The punishment should match the offence in both kind and degree. Just as Edom and other nations had done to Judah, so it would be done to them. Thus we read in verse 16 that just as the Edomites and others had engaged in celebratory drinking over Jerusalem's demise, so they will be made to drink, but they will be made to drink of the cup of the Lord's wrath. And this principle of payback is something brought out by other prophetic books. For example, in Ezekiel 35, we read, and this is specifically of Edom, because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. And so to the third of this morning's lessons, and that is the Lord's punishment is always condign, always fitting. The punishment always fits the crime. We hear an awful lot today, not just within the church, but without in Christendom, 
about how we must reject any notion that God is a God of wrath. Divine punishment is nowadays considered as taboo. But this is a lie. Unless you hear people say that God's wrath is an Old Testament concept that was rejected by Jesus, be aware that in the Bible, Jesus spoke more about hell and eternal damnation than anyone else. And the principle that people will get back what they give out is infused into the New Testament too. Thus Jesus could say, as you judge, so shall you be judged. Whilst the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul, as he talks about sinful man, pens these words. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When, the, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Romans 2 verses 5 to 6. God's punishment will be exactly proportionate to people's unrepented of sins. Of course, anyone can have their sins forgiven if they are prepared to repent before God. But for those who don't, they will receive a punishment commensurate with their offences. And finally, verses 17 to 21. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zephyrad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This last section then speaks of the restoration of Israel. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. God is of course a God of judgment, but he is also a God of deliverance, a God of salvation. And in these last verses, this is expressed in terms of the restoration of Judah. Indeed, not only Judah, for you'll see reference to the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph. That is, the kingdom of Israel will be reunited. The emphasis is on the Israelites recovering their land. In a reversal of fortunes, Judah will regain the Negev from the Edomites. 
Indeed, in all directions, land will be restored to Israel. Negev to the south, Philistia to the west, Gilead to the east, and Samaria to the north. In stark contrast, Edom will disappear. Stubble, set on fire, destroyed. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The book then closes with a marvellous declaration of Yahweh's sovereignty. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Yahweh reigns supreme and his rule will be visible to all. And thus our final lesson for this morning and indeed for our our short mini-series on Obadiah. And it's this. The Lord is always faithful to his own. Yahweh had entered into a covenant relationship with Israel and he would honour his commitments to his people, notwithstanding their rebelliousness. Yes, God would chastise them by way of the exile, but they would return to their land and know the Lord's blessing. And this does raise the issue of when this envisaged restoration of Israel will take place. It is true there was a partial fulfillment of the Lord's promise in the Old Testament era. Judah did return from exile, um, from Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt. And then during the intertestamental period, under the Maccabean era of the second century BC, the Edomites were dislodged from the Negev region. But this surely cannot be a total fulfillment of the restoration that was signalled here. And we're left then with two possibilities. Either the promises to Israel are fulfilled in our age, in the New Testament era, in a spiritual rather than a strictly earthly sense, or they have yet to be realised by way of a future restoration of an earthly restored Israel, a regenerated Israel. And this, of course, will split commentators into their respective amillennial and premillennial camps. So you can explore that one and reach your own conclusion. But either way, God will be faithful to his word and to his people. The descendants of Jacob, those of the community of faith, will prosper Those of Esau and Edom have only destruction as their end, unless they bow the knee to the Lord, for in the end, his kingdom will prevail. And the the reality is, God will always be faithful to his people. They will be vindicated. Their enemies will be defeated and punished. Israel still exists today, Whether we think of Israel in terms of, you know, the new Israel of the church or the actual literal nation of Israel, where is Edom today? It's gone. It's vanished. No survivors from Esau. You see, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And how significant is this for our brothers and sisters today who languish in prison cells in 
death camps in North Korea or in shipping containers in Eritrea. God knows all about their suffering. He will not forget them. They will be victorious in the end. Their oppressors are not going to have the final word. And thus we reach the end of our two-part study of Obadiah. Obadiah is a book that is brief, unlike myself, and one which packs a punch. And apparently Les is working on an updated version of his masterful talk, so we'll all wait expectantly for that. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.